Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. But I want to talk about this, this uh, the weight of a step, because in the Bible, walk is the, the picture that we're often given of what life with God is like. He's called us to a, a particular kind of walk. And in fact, in the New Testament, oftentimes when it's talking about our lifestyle, it uses a, a word that means to walk, the walk that you have, walk in the way of love, walk in righteousness. We we hear the, the word walk being used in a way that's a word picture for us of life being lived with God. You know, we're not going in circles. We're not, we shouldn't be anyway. Uh, hopefully we're not going backwards, but if we're 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 doing the Christian life right. We're in a we're in a journey in a walk that's moving towards uh, our eternity, our life with God, towards maturity, all of those things. But if we're not careful, at times we can find ourselves making a misstep. And I thought this morning, uh, this has been on my heart all week, and I can't point to a particular reason why. Like I'm not I haven't spurred this message on because of uh, I'm not thinking of anybody. I'm not haven't had a conversation that spurred this on. I just am, I was just was thinking about this all this week, and it's been on my heart, and it's it's come out in different ways. And uh, sometimes when patterns like that begin to emerge, I feel God's trying to tell us something, and He wants to say something to us about the weight of our step and and how important that is. So let's take a moment, and could we just could we open our heart to what God wants to do by saying, "Lord, um, have this moment, have our ears, have our mind." of our heart, that we might hear, uh, that we might understand, that we might receive and be changed, we pray in your name. Amen. I thought of in terms of the weight of a step uh, relationship that develops early in the book of Genesis, and it's that of uh, Abraham and his nephew Lot. I don't know if you know much about Abraham's situation, but he's from Ur of the Chaldees, which is a long way from from where the land of Israel is, and God spoke to him, and he said um, to him that you're to leave from your country. And so Abraham and Lot started out from the same place. They both started out from Ur, and they they come from a background, or a city at least, a culture in which they worship uh, a moon god, and and they worship something other than Yahweh. And so when God speaks to them, it tells us a little bit something about Abraham. At this point, um, he's called Abram. And I just want you to know, I'm not confused about that, but just for simplicity, I'm going to call him Abraham. Is everybody okay with that? We're just going to call him Abraham throughout. Uh, but Abraham, Abram, Abraham, and Lot, they start out from the same place. In Genesis 12, verse 1 through 4, the Bible says, The Lord had said to Abram, uh, except when I'm reading Scripture, then I will say Abram, okay? Uh, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land that I'll show you. And then in verse 4, it says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. That's interesting, isn't it? That it would, it would make sure that that's known. Because there were other people that were traveling with him. But, but in particular, Lot is pointed out as having gone with him. Now, the Bible doesn't describe it all for us. But it was a long journey on foot. And something that we ought to keep in mind is that following biblical pace isn't exactly chronological or isn't exactly um, the same pace at which natural time moves. 
Do you know what I mean by that? Like, we're going to go over one verse here, and it's going to be 900 miles and several probably months later, at least a month later, that Abraham's going to show up in a different place. But we don't get all the details of the difficult journey of getting up every morning and hoofing it. And, you know, sometimes in our lives, because we read Scripture from one big moment to the next, we forget that there are days that we go in that we have to do regular stuff. Okay, so let's let's hear a lesson here that the 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 tempo of the biblical story isn't exactly the the um, live tempo that sometimes we face in day to day. There's other things that aren't said here. Okay, and I think that's important for us to know. Um, So 900 miles later, you can imagine walking that driving that is one thing. Walking that's another. So they walk 900 miles to. The promised land. Abraham and Lot started out from the same place. And now the second kind of waypoint that we would see on this is that they they end up in the same place. Abraham and Lot, they arrived together in Canaan. Verse 5 says, He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all his possessions they had accumulated in the people they had acquired in Haran, and they, they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills, uh, to the hills east of Bethel. And he, he he, he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. So I'd like to point out here that Abraham and Lot, they arrive in the promised land together. They travel through it together. Lot is with him as he sets up his tents, as he builds his altars. He's there all along. Okay, so... Then a famine, we're not necessarily going to read this portion, but in chapter 13, it talks about a famine that breaks out in Abraham and Lot. They go down to um, Egypt to escape the famine, and there's some interesting things that happen there that I'll just pique your interest in, and you can read them later. Uh, And then after a period of time, Pharaoh wants Abraham to leave. Okay, Why does he want him to leave? That's for later reading. He wants Abraham to leave, and Abraham comes back to the promised land, and he returns to that place in Bethel where previously he'd set up his tent, and previously he'd built an altar. And it tells us that then again, he called on the name of the Lord. He called on the name of the Lord again. So Abraham and Lot are now back in the promised land. They've got these, they've got this entourage that travels with them. They've got a flock of sheep. Is that the right word for a collective of sheep? Herd? flock, flock of sheep, uh, traveling with them. And uh, pretty soon we start to see some tension building between those who are, uh, who are administrating Lot's flocks and those who are administrating Abraham's flocks. And the, the main problem is that it seems that there's not enough grazing land for both of them. Okay, are, you, are you on track with this story? Well, know this story, right? They're, we're on track with that taking place And so it says in verse 5 of chapter 13, Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds with tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. 
the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. I think the reason that this is mentioned here is because it's not just we need to know that the promised land is a good place for uh, herding of or flocking of sheep, right? We need to know that. But it seems as if it can't support two guys. How can it support the whole land of Israel, the whole nation of Israel? Well, the Bible is giving us a note here that the reason there's not enough grazing ground is because the Canaanites and the Perizzites also live there, and they've got their sheep. Does that make sense? So uh, I, think the, I think Moses, as he's writing this, wants us to know, promised land's a good place, but because of limited resources at this particular time, because of all the people that are gathered there, they can't stay together. Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we're close relatives. It's, uh, is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. And if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and he saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. And the two men parted company. And uh, Lot went one way, and Abram went another. And this is really interesting because uh, what we see here is that, that Abram gives the choice to Lot. Lot makes a decision solely based upon what he sees. Okay, do you see that? He looks out, the land looks good. There's something to be said about how we make our judgments in life about the next step that we'll take. Do we base it simply on sight? Now, I want to make a case for this because sometimes going by sight has gotten a bad name, a bad rap. I think there's something to be said about evaluating all the data. We need to do that. In fact, we'll read a scripture that relates to that. The problem is if we're only asking the question, what's the bottom line, okay, which is what Lot is doing. Lot's in an agricultural environment, sheep or money, right? So that's value. So in essence, if we want to translate in our term, Lot is looking at, about, at what's good for him financially. Okay, That looks good. That looks like a good place to take the sheep. I'll go there. Okay, Well... So we'll we'll go uh, we'll go one way you go another. Um, they're looking at pasture land. He's looking at pasture lands. He's looking at it purely uh, from a uh, a way that seems reasonable, a way that seems uh, to make sense financially, and not necessarily a way that makes sense spiritually. Because if he had known, if we had known all the stuff that we're about to find out about where Lot's going, I think Lot might have made a different decision. He might have done something completely different, but he didn't. So what we see is then Abraham, he moves with God and Lot moves away. In verse 12, Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and he pitched his tent near Sodom. And now the people of Sodom were wicked and they were sinning greatly against the Lord. He contrasts verse 18, the Bible says, so Abram, he went to live near the trees of Mamre where he he pitched his tent, and there he built an altar to the Lord. The Bible doesn't say that the Lord 
uh, or that Lot built altars or that he called upon the name of the Lord. And I don't know if this is intended to let us know Lot is a different kind of person or if we're simply to understand that Abram was a quality person who everywhere he went, he built altars and he called upon the name of the Lord. Lot doesn't seem to do that. And I don't know if he would do that being where he was. But from the point that they separated, Lot had chose, chosen to head towards Sodom, and he found himself in trouble. I'd like to notice here the progressive nature of this head, this direction towards Sodom, that one step led to the next step, and the next step led to the step after that, which is often the case, isn't it? That uh, we start to see, we can see this in our spiritual lives, is that if we're walking in accordance with the Lord, our steps are leading us closer to him. Okay? And if we're walking out of tune with him, we can see that our steps can begin to take us away from him or have taken us away from him. But look at the progressive nature of this. In chapter 13, verse 12, it, said, it tells us that Lot was living near Sodom. Near Sodom, right? Do you remember that? 13, verse 12. Here's the easy way to remember this next one. It's in 14, verse 12, because the next thing it says is that Lot was living in Sodom. Not near, in, right? So what's that mean? That means that he's moved from the outskirts to the inside. A step has been taken. And then we see again in chapter 19, some uh, promises happen for Abram in those intervening chapters. But in chapter 19, verse 1, it tells us that Lot is sitting in the gates of the city. Okay, do you know what that means? That means that he's accepted, he's welcomed, he's part of the community, okay? So you can see some things that are taking place in Lot's life. He's accepted as a part of the community. Now we have to keep in mind something that Second Peter chapter 2 tells us. It describes Lot as a righteous man who was distressed at, uh, by the depraved conduct of the lawlessness uh, that he found there for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So he was bothered by it, but not enough to move away, not enough to get out, not enough to protect his family from those influences. Now, I want to tell you, on the other side of this, we can't, like, build a bunker somewhere in remote Alaska and move away from wickedness. Because in Christ, we're called in a different way to shine into our culture, you, you know what I mean? Like some people who become Christians, they just want to like separate from everything and the, no evil influences around. Well, we're called to change our culture. We're called to be salt and light that impacts our culture for God. One thing that salt does, I don't know if you knew this, but sometimes we think of salt in terms of flavor. But the other thing that salt does is it preserves. This culture would fall apart and rot if it were not for those godly people who could stand and uh, be accounted for and hold the line. And I don't know if you've ever been that kind of person where if people are telling dirty jokes or uh, using bad language or talking bad about somebody and you walk into the room and they stop doing it, you're being salt and light. Unless maybe they're talking about you, I don't know. But if it changes the environment, you're being effective in some way. Even if it, it's not necessarily has changed them, but it's changed that environment from your being there. That's a good thing. We see this progressive move in Lot, uh, moving toward. 
The next thing that we see in, uh, in Lot's life is that Abraham has to come to his rescue. He has to come to his rescue when, in chapter 14, when warring kings come in and invade Sodom and, and take Lot and his family captive, and Uncle Abe has to track them down and beat them up and bring them back. And so Abraham has to come to the rescue because Lot has gotten himself in the predicament that he's in. Someone described uh, Lot as an albatross around the neck of Abraham a burden that he had to carry, that they were good as long as they were going together, but increasingly Lot, perhaps not having the same vision or promises from God that Abraham has, becomes a burden that Abraham has to carry, and it can be no more. They have to go different directions. Well, it wasn't only then, but then God told Abraham that I'm preparing to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 of Genesis And Abraham pleads on behalf of Sodom, and finally it appears there's not enough righteous to spare the city. And so God says, I'll go get Lot myself. And he sends angels in to get Lot through an interesting scenario and and brings him out. And he says to them uh, when he and his wife and daughters are getting ready to leave Sodom, when you leave, don't look back. Don't look back. And there's some good advice in that. Remember Jesus said to the man who wanted to be his disciple, uh, and he said, but first let me go deal with some family matters. And what did Jesus say? Anyone who takes hold of the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. If you take hold of the plow and you look back, you're not worthy of me. And so there's something to be said about looking back. Sometimes people can be going the direction of God, but they can be looking back, longing for the life that they used to have. And it occurs to me that when they traveled out of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and headed towards safety, away from this place where um, they've been called to, um, that there's something in the, the heart of Lot's wife that she still wants to be back there. That's her life back there. There's a longing to be back there. There's a curiosity that wants to see what is happening in that city that she once lived in. And among the people that she once knew and and loved. And so when they take off from Sodom, she looks back and is destroyed. You remember the story turned into a, a pillar of salt because she looked back. So he lost his wife. And then we see something further happen as they get away from that environment, Lot, his two daughters, and they come to a region where they feel a little bit safe, but then they exclude a little bit more and his daughters think that maybe all of creation's been destroyed, and how will Lot continue his legacy? And so they can, they devise this scheme. This is in the Bible, and some of you know it. You know where it's going. But if you don't know it, Lot's oldest daughter conspired with the younger, and uh, I read one translation yesterday that said they plied him with alcohol. They plied him with alcohol. They got him drunk so drunk that he didn't know what was going on, and the oldest daughter slept with him, and she conceived, and then she said to the younger sister the next day, now it's your turn. And so she went in and slept with her father, and she conceived. And two nations grew up out of that um, out of that encounter. Um, one nation was Moab, and the other was Ammon. And if you read the story of Israel coming into the promised land, God said, don't go to war with these two nations because they're your near relatives. They're they're descendants of Abraham's father, right? 
So don't go to war with them. But all the while, remember Moab and Ammon joined in with this. They hired Balaam to put a curse on Israel. Remember? So Balaam goes. He doesn't want to go. There's a long story in that that's really interesting. He wants to go, and he wants the money, and God tells him not to go. So he tries to figure out a way he can manipulate that and ends up going anyway. And God says, all right, I'll let you go. And then he meets at a pass, and the donkey sees the angel. And the prophet, this, there's something in this, is not spiritually perceptive enough himself to see what his donkey sees. You see that? And uh, there's an angel there with a sword, and the donkey talks to him and says, because <laughs> Balaam beats the donkey and says, why won't you go forward? Well, there was an angel standing in the way, and um, the donkey says to him, why are you beating me? <laughs> Am I not the donkey that you've ridden all these years? Come on, buddy. <laughs> that's, that's my translation. But Anyway, uh, Balaam does go and try to put a curse, but when he goes to speak, he blesses them. And he says to the king, the king's mad. Balak's mad. Why did you do that? And he said, well, I can't curse what God's blessed. I can't curse what God's blessed. Even if he had said the words, they wouldn't work because you can't curse what God has blessed. And uh, so Ammon also rose up against Israel. And you find later on that they have some entanglements between that nation and, um, well, Moab and Ammon and Israel. And uh, what this brings out is that a little decision, like I'll take that, can lead to all that happened following that. Okay, one step in the wrong direction can be weighty. It can be really weighty. And so what seems to be little decisions can change the course of our lives. And it matters that we weigh them out. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15 It says, the simple believe anything, but the prudent give thought to their steps. The prudent give thought to their steps. How does does a near relative end up uh, enemies of Israel and idol worshipers, the Moabites? Uh, Do you know that in time, um, Ammon... And Moab became idol worshipers, and their idols began to infiltrate into the life of Israel. And so I, I don't know exactly the process by which this developed, but, but uh, Ammon began to worship a god called Moloch. Moloch. And actually, Moloch is a derogatory name because the real name is Milcom, but they switched the, the vowels out so that it's Moloch, and it means king of shame. And what happened is that uh, when people worship Moloch, they had this long, ugly statue with arms outstretched and a furnace for a mouth, and they would roll their babies into the furnace. And that's how they worshiped Moloch, the Ammonites. How do you get to that? They've got a legacy that goes back to Abraham and Abraham's father through Lot. How did they not carry that relationship with them, that knowledge of God with them, that that nearness to God with them. The Moabites worshipped a god called Shemash, Shemash. And Shemash, or Chemosh, uh, was a god who, uh, they, they found this uh, thing called the Moabite stele, or Moabite stone. And they've read about Moabite culture. And so everything we talk about here in the Bible, there's archaeological evidence that backs this up. I hope you know that. We're not just like on a wing and a prayer going, you know what makes me feel good today? I want to believe this. 
There's stuff out there that confirms all this. So they found that, and they found out, they found out more about Shemash. And uh, Shemash was the kind of God that they, they thought in writing sounded a lot like Yahweh. Now, this is really interesting. That sounded a lot like Yahweh, except for the major difference is that with the worship of Shemash, there's no moral code. There's no moral code. They don't, they don't have any moral requirements. You worship a particular way, but there's no requirements for us to act any particular way. You just worship those gods. And here's the interesting thing. If you're a Christian or you've been around Christianity most of your life, then you realize that there are rights and wrongs to it, right? Do you know there's a lot of world religions that don't have any rights and wrongs? So you just do whatever you want to do, and then you make sure you sacrifice to the gods and all is good. The other major difference with Shemash, and God has said that he would never do this, he would never require this, is they offered their children in sacrifice to him. And so you see these things developing between Moloch and Shemash is that there was no moral code, and they practiced child sacrifice in both of these religions. And it seems to me that this kind of religion would develop naturally when you have some knowledge of God, okay, so hence uh, Shemash sounds a little bit like Yahweh, but you disconnect it from truth revealed by God, and you surround yourself by immoral culture, and pretty soon what you have is all God's requirements being abandoned. Okay, listen, this can happen to us, is that we can have some knowledge of God, and then we can disconnect and say, God doesn't really have any rules. He doesn't have any right and wrong. And we can say we want to live however we want. And what we've done is we've changed in our own perception what God is like. And it leads us down a different path. When we start to say there is no right and wrong, we've taken a step in the wrong direction. And it will be, it will be tragic. Not just for us, but increasingly so for your children, your children's children. As they disconnect more and more from knowledge of God, there's going to be vast repercussions, and we're seeing it working out in our culture today. Proverbs 29, verse 18, a verse that you probably know, and one of the words goes back to the uh, Mount Sinai incident when they built the golden calf. Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no revelation, you might have in your translation vision, and what it means is uh, a, a prophetic vision, a revelation from God through a prophet. Where there's no revelation, people cast off restraint. When it says in uh, Exodus that the people of God were worshiping the golden calf, when it says there that they're doing that, you know what it describes there is them casting off restraint. It's the same thing. They cast off restraint. When there's no knowledge of God... People cast off restraint, which means there is nothing to hold them back from doing whatever their heart desires. One step in the wrong direction leads to all that. Listen to the way the NLT says, Proverbs 29, verse 18. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. When they don't accept divine guidance, they run wild. So a decision is was made without considering the spiritual consequences, and Lot made that decision what looked better financially or agriculturally um, was not the best thing for him and his family and his legacy in the long run. Some things look good on paper, but they don't lead to the good life that God intends. We have to ask other kinds of questions. Sometimes people operate 
uh, based on what is financially beneficial without thinking about what matters for eternity. Like, I've got kids. I can't see how anybody would want to put their finances above their the well-being and legacy of their children. Why would we do that? Or if uh, you're trying to follow after God and, and live for him, why would we let emotions dictate what we're going to do? And that's dangerous to let something else, like, this is just what feels good. Well, don't do what just feels good. Do what's right. And in my experience, what feels good and what's right don't always line up. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. Right? Anybody else say amen to that? (laughs) It's true. So we can't just base it on those things. We have to ask other kinds of questions. We have to ask questions of, is this the way in which God is leading me? Then we can take the right steps. Do you know in the Bible there's difference between steps and way? And you, you can imagine this. Uh, a way is a direction. It's the big picture that we're going, you know, the, the way that we're going. And it's the course of our life. That's the way. And so when we're, we're traveling God's way, we're, we're on a particular course. Would you agree? And his way is not the world's way, right? Jesus made that clear when he said, there's a broad road, and there's a narrow road. There's different ways in life, and they lead to different things. The way is the big picture. The step is that momentary uh, decision that's taking place. The step is um, those small parts of our journey where decisions are made, whether an action um, is in line with the way or whether it's not. So when we we take our steps, we want to make sure that they're in line with the way that we're supposed to be going. Have you ever noticed in the Old Testament when it talks about uh, the kings in particular, I know this is in other places, but it'll say something of an evaluation of their life, right? Usually there's a comparison with David, and then there's something like this that if they were righteous, they did not turn to the right or to the left. They They did not step out of line. They didn't step out of the way. They walked with God in the direction that he was calling them to. They stayed on the straight and narrow. They walked God's way. But when they did, they they turned away to some other direction. They turned away to false gods. They turned towards something else. And you know, in uh, often the prophets, when they're challenging people to come back, they're challenging them to turn their way back towards God. This, I mean, these are this is the way that the the language was working is they're they're asking them to turn back towards God, return to the way that you know is right. I think of Jeremiah who says, you stand at the crossroads and ask for the ancient paths and walk in them. Folks, so often we believe the the chronological snobbery of our day, that we've figured it all out. We're so slick psychologically. We know more than the philosophers did and the uh, the ancient wise men and sages of yesterday. We know so much more than them. And the old ways are passe and worn out. And now that we're technological and we've progressed in one area, we've progressed in all areas. Is that true? Can we logically make the connection that just because we've progressed in one area, that that means we've progressed in every area? I would suggest to you that while we're making technological progress, we're making moral digression simultaneously. And that's sad because it's going to have bigger consequences. Somebody made a comment about um, World War I, and they talked about how uh, the wars that were previously fought were fought by wicked men, but 
But uh, now we've got technological ability to take those same motives and those same wickedness and destroy our world because we've got bigger tools to do it with. So <laughs> it's a dangerous thing to be in retrograde spiritually and morally and at the same time getting more and more sophisticated tools to do it with. That's scary, but God wins. <laughs> if you need some encouragement today, he wins. So I, I want to encourage you with that. But the thing that I think we need to do, looking at Lot's wi- life, not his wife, she's something else altogether, literally. As we, we look at his life, I think we need to ask the question, what, is, what's, what are the right steps? And we need to watch where our steps go. See, God's given us guidance about what kind of life uh, pleases him. And when we take steps, we need to ask, is this step in line with the way he's leading me? Lots of steps that we can take, this moral decision that I'm about to make. Should I, <laughs> should I steal from my boss at work? Right? Should I cheat on my spouse? Should I live this particular way in our culture? Should I be involved in that kind of behavior? Should I do drugs? All of these things are questions where we're taking a step. And the question that we need to ask is, is this step in line with the way? This is a great decision-making model. Always asking ourselves, because so many people live this life arbitrarily, just whatever comes, they're tossed about by every wind and wave. And if they're shut, we'll just see what happens. And if it goes this way, I'll go this way. And if it goes that way, I'll go that way. And they sway with the culture and the times and whatever the whims of their friends or their peer group are. And they're not driven along a way. They're not intentional with their steps. We don't know where we're headed. And I think that God wants us to know where we're headed and he wants us to make steps with wisdom. Every step that we would choose would be one that delights him. He's given us guidance about what kind of life pleases him. And we need to take those things into consideration and commit our way to the Lord. So when you're asking questions about what's the next step in life, we need to ask questions like, yes, is this a sound financial decision? Is this, does this seem the wise thing to do? Uh, how is this going to affect all of these things? Ask those questions, but you better include at the very top of the list, how does God feel about this? Is God leading me in this direction? Because sometimes a direction that God leads us, it doesn't make financial sense in the moment. Are you with me? It doesn't make sense to sell all your stuff and move to Peru and do missions work if you're looking at the bottom line. Because everything you get is going out. It's going out to ministry. But if you're not building this kingdom and you're building another kingdom, that makes sense. So you have to consider that and take that into to uh, your decision-making model. Proverbs 3.23, this is good to know because we wonder how our steps can be firm. In chapter 37, excuse me, Psalm 37.23, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. The Lord makes firm those steps, but it's because we've delighted in him. We've made We've made pursuit of him the way in which we're going to travel. We've made the path of righteousness, the, 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 guiding, um, the guiding path of life, that we're walking that way. And I would like you to notice the progressive nature. Remember, Lot, we saw progressive nature, that he, he 
set his eyes in a direction. Okay? I, I didn't mention that, but that's really the first step is he set his eyes in a direction. It looked good. Then the second thing is he moved close to it, and then he moved inside of it, and then he became a part of it. Right? That's progressive. Do you know anywhere along the way he could have interrupted that? said, what am I doing? I know these people are wicked just living on the outside of the city. That's enough. What I need to do is I need to get back around my company, my family. Maybe, I, I don't know, because you can't speculate really about what would have happened because Scripture is what it is. But imagine if Lie had gone back to Abraham and said, I know we're supposed to part. I'll tell you what, I'm just going to kick my sheep, send them in a different direction, and I'm going to go with you. How different would his life have been? Right? It's a thought. I'm not suggesting anybody go kick all their sheep and send them away. But what a thought to think what might have happened had Lot made a different decision. There's a progressive nature to righteousness, too. As we walk in light of him, we grow. As we walk in the path with him, as we keep in step with the Spirit, the Bible talks about that in Galatians 5. If we want to live in the Spirit, we have to keep in step. If we want to walk, I think the verb there is walk. If we want to walk in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, which means that it matters the little decisions we make are Godward. And then God's going to do something. He's going to fill us with his fruit and help us to be people more like him. But there's a progressive nature to all of this, and either one can be interrupted. If you're walking with God, I want to caution you that a misstep can lead you down a different path. Sometimes, at first, it looks really good, but when you start to think about it, it's not in line with the way in which God is leading you. What if we, what if we took this principle and we flipped it around, used it for good? What if our decisions were weighed carefully in light of our pursuit of God? Instead of asking the question is what looks good, because a fool, it tells us, will believe anything. In Proverbs fourteen fifteen, the simple believe anything. But the prudent, they give thought to their steps. Okay, we're not just out there casually wandering along, especially in a dangerous world like ours. When footing or stepping is dangerous, somebody spilled Legos all over the floor, you're not running willy-nilly barefooted in the middle of that. And if it's icy out, you're going to be careful. And if you're walking on something that could give way, like a floor that's rotted out, you're going to look for a solid place to stand. And if you're taking pictures next to the Grand Canyon, you're going to be careful. Probably they have rails. I've never been there. But imagine there's some care that's given to that because they don't want somebody taking a misstep and ending up in the drink. So what if we turn this around and realize that God wants us to watch our steps carefully and order them carefully with his help. Of course, he orders them, really. But we've got to cooperate with him in all of that. So what if we begin to do that and make a decision? Because little tiny decisions can make a big difference. When I was 17, I went to Maryland to visit my brother. I've told you this story in different facets of it, but I think I've mentioned one time that um, we... He was a youth pastor out on the East Coast, and I was a 17-year-old high school kid that didn't really, hadn't really found the way. Okay. And my parents sent me out there because I think they thought I would really get saved. <laughs> what did they know? And it was a good break from the hot Kansas sun. Trade that in for an East Coast hot sun. 
So we went out there, and um, the first week I was there, my brother took some kids to youth camp, and I went with them. And then we came home on Saturday and had Sunday. And then the next week, uh, we went on a mission trip to uh, help a church in West Virginia. And I came back from that, and we had the weekend. And I told my brother, um, I think my plane is supposed to leave on Monday, so we may need to go to the airport. So we drove from where he lived um, somewhere about 30 minutes from Baltimore to uh, Baltimore, Washington International. And we got to the ticket counter, and the ticket lady said, your ticket's not for another week. And so my brother goes, well, what do you want to do? I think he was annoyed with me because I dragged him on, and I would be too. I'm annoyed with myself from back then. I dragged him all the way to the airport. It was going to be an hour round trip just for nothing. And so he's like, what do you want to do? Because the lady said, you can go ahead and change the ticket and go back early. And so I had this moment of decision, and in just a moment I said, I'll stay. The next week uh, he was helping out at a youth conference in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we went to that youth conference. And at the end of that week I was there as a helper. I wasn't even there as a student attending. I was just helping him out, doing the games and activities for that youth conference. And... Um, the preacher was preaching, I think it was a Thursday night, and he he was preaching, I can't remember what he was preaching about, and he said, the Lord said to me something, if I came back tonight, you wouldn't be ready. And I went down and gave my heart to the Lord. And here's the thing about that is, I was on a, I was in this moment of indecision about whether I was going to leave or not the week before, and a little decision to stay put me in the sight of God in such a way that he could really get a hold of my heart. Now, I know he could have done that anywhere, but this little decision, I feel like, led to that. And over and over again, we see in our lives little decisions. People make a little decision, and we see their life start to veer away from God. And I've seen that happen. Getting away for the summer sometimes, getting away from church and the people you know, and just enjoying. I know one guy who was my friend, uh, and he'd come out of a life of drugs. And and uh, he landed in jail, and the first person he thought of was his Sunday school teacher. He called her up. Kathy was her name. And she led him back to the Lord. And so he came back to church. And uh, he was there for a little while. And pretty soon God started to prosper him because he worked hard. Instead of just blowing his money on drugs and alcohol, he was working hard, saving up, taking care of his family, doing all the right things. And his bank account began to grow. Okay? And, and I think it just comes from the fact that he was being a responsible man. Well, when his bank account began to grow, he thought, you know, it would be fun. It would be fun to get a boat. And then I can spend my weekends on the lake. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You agree? It's nice to go on the lake and nice to have a boat. Those are, those are nice things. Those are things that could have been done in the blessing of God. But here's what happened is that increasingly we saw less and less of him. Because it wasn't just once a month or once every once in a while, but pretty soon every weekend Shane was away at the lake. And before you know it, he started to get back into drinking. He started to get back into smoking pot. And then it began to lead to other things. I think it took years off his life because he's not much older than me, and he's gone. He's dead. And so he goes back down that road, a little decision, a little misstep in the wrong direction. Now, at any point, he could have said, you know what? We've been to the lake three times this month. Let's go to church on Sunday. 
and started to get back. And, and, and church isn't the savior of it all. But you, you see what I'm saying? Little steps can take us to or away from God if we allow them to. So this morning, I, I want to invite you to stand. I've already preached too long. We've, we've gone uh, longer than we want to here. I want to ask you a question. Do you have a decision to be made? If you do, the one thing you, you shouldn't take from this message is that we should be paralyzed with fear about making that decision. I don't want us to do that. I don't think that's the right way to go. I think the right thing to do in regards to that is we commit our way to the Lord, and then we ask him to guide our steps, and we keep our eyes open. Okay? Commit your way to the Lord. Ask him to guide your steps and make the best decision you can with his help, and I believe God will guide you into things. Because we see on the other side of this, Abraham, he, wherever he goes, God is blessing him. But his life is lived Godward. He's building altars. He's calling on the name of the Lord wherever he goes. That's what his life's about. So God can bless him. God can order his steps. God can put him in certain uh, situations where he can bless him. So ask him to guide your steps. Here in just a moment, if you'd like to come to the altar, I'd like to pray with you. And I want to make this a standing order from now on. If you see somebody at the altar and you want to pray for them, come pray for them. So if you need prayer because you're facing a decision and you want to make the right step, I don't know that I'll have the right wisdom for you, but God does. And we can pray together and ask God to take that need. Here's the other thing. Lot uh, made a decision, but anywhere along the way, he could have interrupted that and made a return. And Christ is a redeemer. If there's ever been progressive bad decisions... We can start to make progressive good decisions and walk with him. We can ask for forgiveness. We can be restored. God can begin to set us on a new path in life. And there can be healing and hope. And I want to extend that. I think this is God's grace towards us is that he can take our lives and he can repair them. And he can make them beautiful and lovely and full of joy still. And if you need prayer in that regard, Christ is Redeemer. If you've never met him, you can simply say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've made a mess of things. Would you take this life and have it for your glory? Lead me. Simple prayer like that because Jesus did die to cover your sins. He did rise and he's a capable leader. That's enough for him to lead and guide you. And oftentimes it's not even that. It's after we've been living for God for a while that we... We need to come back and we need to have him redeem what's been broken. And he can do that too. The attitude of prayer. But I, I love it how God works things together and he, he leads and guides. Jacob came and said he's uh, he's got a word for us and we're going to let this be our parting word. And so, uh, Jacob, come and share what you feel God's put on your heart. Um, uh, what a great message. Uh, God is good. I just felt the Lord saying, um, I am the way, I am the truth and the life, and as you abide in me, I have promised you my spirit not just to let you know the will of God, but also to equip you to do the will of God. And uh, yeah, he wants you to drink deeply of his mercy and his grace, and as that flows through you, uh, he will delight in you. Uh, Jesus is the way.
Amen. Let's uh, have a word of prayer. Let's cling tightly to Jesus. He's our leader. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And so if we stay in step with him, we'll never be out of step. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.